0: Thank you very much. Uh, I'm glad to be here with my good friend Yanis, and those who know me know very well what do I mean by good friends—that he voluntarily accepts all my dirty jokes and so on. Uh, now, even, let me... even enjoy them. <laughs> uh, I thought always that masochism is a feminine category, but okay, that's another point. Okay, now more seriously. Uh, The reason I accepted this talk is that what we need in these days, I think, more than ever, is what? The great philosopher of enlightenment, Immanuel Kant, called public use of reason. He opposes, as some of you maybe know, public use of reason to private use of reason. But in what way? For Kant, state administration, theological faculty, uh, law, faculty of law, this is private use of reason, because it serves preordained order, state interests, and so on. While if we meet just to debate something, thinking really it is public use of reason. And public use of reason is what is under threat, what is disappearing today. Public use of reason means not just to think, but to reflect on thinking itself. Don't be afraid, I will give you a simple example. Here in Slovenia, a couple of days ago, I saw on TV uh, a report on those uh, uh, anti-COVID, anti-COVID measures, where a lady was saying, I'm here not for politics, I don't care about politics. It's only for my freedom and human rights that I am am here. Now, our first act here should be to analyze this term. But what do we mean by freedom? In what conditions it's possible to be free? What do we mean by politics? Following my good friend, Alenka Zupancic, I would like to paraphrase her what she said in a recent interview that we all talk about politics of emancipation, but what we need today is also emancipation of politics, in the sense that we don't need less politics, we need more engaged uh, politics. Uh, because, are you aware that when you have this cynical attitude, politics is a whore, who cares about it, just mind your own business, this is, I think, the stance which fits perfectly those in power. So, that's why we are here, and I would just like to begin to approaching Greece with a difference, which, and then immediately I give you the word, which... Uh, shows nicely the superiority of Greek civilization over our Slovene civilization. <laughs> Recently I read that we discovered some doctors who you pay 3-400 euros, you get a fake vaccine. We have those too. Yeah, but as I am informed, is it true or not, what? with a difference, Your doctors did something wonderful, and that's where I support them. Uh, You know what they did? Okay, you are opposed to vaccination, you pay 400 and they give you something, they tell you, oh, it's just water, just to go through the... They discovered that these doctors were giving you real vaccination. (laughs) And I think this is how uh, we, when we criticize, and again, we Slovenes are true primitives. When I hear anecdotes like that, I understand why Greeks are the origin of Western <laughs> civilization. But more seriously, uh, no, we, no, no, sorry, i immediately finish. We are the inventors of mythology. Sorry? We are the
1: inventors of mythology. This is a great myth, a very instructive myth, but I fear it is a myth.
0: No, but what I really <laughs> want to say is that the reason I like this story yeah. is that it has a very important lesson for our, now I'm slowly getting serious, for our situation today, that the way the power mechanisms enslave you is not counting on your naivety, Mm -hmm. but counting precisely on your distrust. That's how conspiracy theories work. Don't trust those in power. Mm -hmm. For example, with pandemic, the motto of skeptics is, do your own research. What does this mean? That you go to Google and put it on search and of course get as many conspiracy <laughs> theories as you want. So what I'm saying is that, uh, I think you, I even read somewhere this what you. The British, the English, whatever, have this wonderful expression, lamp to slaughter. Yeah. That You don't have to catch the lamp, it voluntarily waits in line. That's how ideology works today. It takes into account our skeptical distance and so on and so on. Short introduction, finished, now I ask the question. Uh, If you want, it's more like what they call in detective movies a third degree, you can get stronger. Because uh, 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 light, if you want, because... The the, the
1: Gestapo light.
0: Gestapo, Yeah. Because uh, 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 questions will be serious. The first one. Syriza. We know, you were almost to the end finance minister and so on. We know what it happened. Just to remind you. On the one hand, it was the demands of the European Union accept our conditions and so on. On the other hand, the Grexit guys. Let's do the revolution, let's step out and so on. And uh, you now we, by we I mean enlightened public all around Europe who were on your side, we were all the time, maybe naively, believing that you, now not you personally, but the whole gang of Syriza, that you had a B-plan. Something secretly to, sorry for the vulgarity, to squeeze the testicles of European Union. Now, we learned lately that after they fired you, that Tsipras and his guys, well, they didn't have a B-Plan. Like, they just capitulated. But you acted at that point as if you had some plan. You even publicly, now comes the friendly, aggressive part, acted as if, I remember a couple of interviews, no, as if, In a couple of days, you will see, I will make a deal, and so on, and so on. So, uh, what is your vision? Did you really shed in your mind what, but not in Tony Blair's sense, a third way? You know, like, was there possible to break out of this vicious cycle either compromise with European Union or Grexit, simple brutal Grexit, which you convinced me once we talked when you were finance minister and you told me that some financial specialist told you that if you do brutally Grexit, the standard of living would have fallen for a further 30%, that it would have been a catastrophe. What was your third way, if there was any? Right. I mean it seriously, because many people think that you didn't have a third way, that you were also bluffing.
1: There was a plan. I still believe that it was eminently workable. And You still believe it? I still believe it. I know it. And you know why? Because I was told so by my enemies. I only believe my enemies. I never believe my friends. Not Absolutely. because they are not trustworthy people, but usually they don't know. They know as much as I know, which is not that much. Who are the en- Name
0: them? Who are you?
1: Mario Draghi. The president of the European Central Bank. What was the plan? The plan had I'm not I'm not going to speak too too long about this because, you know,
0: I've, ah, because I've written a whole book about because it. Because you don't really have a plan. No, <laughs>
1: no, no, I do I did have a plan. It's just I've spoken about it far too often. Okay. And there is a 600-page book on it. But OK, what was the plan? Uh, and the, the plan, by the way, Slavoj, was the reason why I was finance minister. Because I was not, not a member of the Syriza party. I never wanted to be a minister. I didn't want to be a parliamentarian or a politician, for that matter. It's just because when Tsipras was about to become prime minister, I said to him, So, what are you going to do when they squeeze you? And he said, I have no idea. Do you have an idea? So, I had an idea and I proposed it to him, the plan. And he said, this is great, but I don't have anybody to implement it. So you're going to have to finance me. And I thought, oh, shit. You know, that I yeah, should have kept my mouth shut. But then, of course, moral duty, all those bourgeois concepts, right? Pushed me to saying yes. But what was the plan? The plan was this. Uh, this is the beginning of 2015. Draghi, who was in the Central Bank, since the end of 2011, spent all the time between 2011 and the beginning of 2015 struggling to create the circumstances for him to buy Italian debt. Because Italy was on the way out. Three trillion euros worth of debt. If that debt had blown up, the eurozone would have blown up. There would have been, you wouldn't have euros in your pockets now. It would have been, Germany would have recreated the Deutsche Mark. It's very simple. Okay? So the only thing that saved that the euro, was that he was going to save the Italian state. But he had to go against the German central bank. So there was a big clash between Mario Draghi, the European central bank, and Jens Weidmann, the head of the Bundesbank, the German central bank. They even ended up in court. The German central bank chief tabled 120 pages of an affidavit against Mario Draghi in the European courts. It's mean, a huge clash. Okay, so Merkel and Draghi were working against the chief of this Bundesbank. Mm. We we're talking about serious clashes now. Okay? These are the contradictions of the system. that If you're a tiny little pipsqueak finance minister of a tiny pipsqueak country, you have to exploit. Uh, and I, I thought i had found the, the weak point of the empire, of the Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. You know. Spaceship, right? Um, and it was this. The only way Draghi managed to convince the European courts to allow him to buy Italian debt was if he's, he pledged that he wouldn't allow one euro of the debt that he purchased to be written down. Hmm? And when I'm, I realized... Sorry,
0: that so that people understand, even, what do you mean by written down?
1: Uh, written off. I written Wiped off. out. Okay. You know? Expunged. Haircut. Um, The Greek state owed 29 billion to the Central Bank. These were bonds that the Central Bank had. And they were in Greek law, which meant the finance minister of Greece could simply do whatever he wanted with them. Say that it would not be paid for another 100 years. This is effectively writing it down. So, A week before the election, I knew we were going to win. It was clear from the the polls. Um, In an interview with the BBC, I I was just a candidate for a member of parliament, formally, right? But I knew I was going to be finance minister if we won. In an interview with the BBC, I was asked some irrelevant question, and on purpose, I said, I gave an irrelevant answer as a signal to Mario Draghi. And it was this. If Syriza wins and we're in government, immediately we're going to get a phone call from Frankfurt, from the European Central Bank, threatening us with bank closures and squeezing. The answer should be, we're going to write down those 29 billion of debt. Because this is what you do. When your Central Bank squeezes you, you squeeze them back. And that would impede the purchase of Italian debt. Cut. Two weeks later, I'm finance minister, and I'm in Frankfurt, and I have my first meeting with, with Mario Draghi. First thing he says to me, after two hours of boring meetings, rituals, and all that, when we were on one-on-one, is, please, Giannis, don't mention again those bonds. And, I, of course, we had a dialectic of recognition there. All right? <laughs> and I said, I will ne- not... Do that if you don't shut down my banks. Okay? Cut again. And this is where my story ends. Two months later, two months later, I learned from within the European Central Bank, from a very high-ranking whistleblower, not Mario Draghi himself, but somebody very close, that the Greek Prime Minister, my comrade and friend, Tsipras, had authorized a message to go through the Deputy Prime Minister, to Draghi, don't listen to Varoufakis, we're not going to let him do it. So there was a plan, it would have worked. There would have been some compromise. Of course there would have been a compromise. Uh, We would have to give stuff, but we would get effectively... The only thing that I cared for, the only reason why I became part of this struggle, was to get Greeks out of debtors' prison. That we would have achieved. And in the final analysis, so that was plan B, and there was a plan X. Plan X was the drachma, because yes, it is true that we would have lost not 30, 20 percent of GDP again, uh, but we would recover it relatively quickly within 18 to 20 months, uh, because in the end, at the moment, after all those years. Our income now in Greece is lower than it was in 2015, and our debt is much, much higher, and we are a debt colony. We would have stopped being a debt colony. So, no regrets for anything, except that I was a bit too lenient with the Troika.
0: Okay. Uh, Just two, and then we went to other topics. Two, or maybe even just one, how do you call it, sub question. Okay. Uh, The obvious Stalinist one, who sees conspiracies, that's me. Why did Tsipras do it? uh, What you said. uh, Look,
1: I I, I have an ideological objection to giving a shit. (laughs) This is between him and his maker, as the Christians would say. Why should I care about what he did? Why he did it? He did it. That's the only thing that
0: matters. Why he did it? No, I didn't mean to dwell into his psychology, but well, was it, not... Did. where did. No, what I meant is, was there pressure from some Greek banking circles? Of course there was pressure. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I had pressure. I mean, can you imagine the pressure? The pressure was unbelievable. Threats yeah. to our family. Pressure galore. But why were we elected? We were elected knowing that that pressure would be there, it's like saying, you know, you go to war and suddenly you're scared. Of course you're scared, it's war. If you're not scared, if, you're, if you don't want to be scared, don't go to war. You get elected to be prime minister on the basis that you're proposing the escape, the mass escape from the debtor's prison. Mm-hmm. Deal with your, your, your fear. Don't succumb to it and do not mm-hmm. surrender.
0: just uh, another uh, sub sub question concerning all this uh, depth uh, depth stuff, uh, uh, and uh, so on, or maybe we should, I'm not sure how far, we should uh, go here, okay. Uh, Okay, let's stop with this line and go to the next point, big question, which is, because I don't want to get lost in this, it is uh, all these affairs of Greece and so on, what I attracted me to you, what I liked, I remember meeting you those, in those years, was that, okay, first nonetheless, the sub-question. But didn't you write in your book that with that half-pornographic title, only for the adults or whatever, <laughs> didn't you write in that book that when you threatened Schäuble, I think, we will do Grexit, that he basically told you, okay, do it, we give you 30 billion. No, 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 Cyprus said that. I never said that.
1: Ah, sorry, I thought it you. No, May that's Cyprus. That's Cyprus' excuse. That when we threatened him with Grexit, he, it was his wish. That's, you know, that's just a big, huge, fat lie. Uh,
2: okay, we okay, never
1: Grexit. threatened with Grexit. Uh, I knew that Schäuble wanted Grexit. Remember... My strategy was always to exploit the uh, ruptures and the contradictions within the system. Mm. Yeah, of course. Okay. Uh, so, one was the clash between the European Central Bank and the Buddhist Bank. The other one, major one, was the clash between the Chancellor, Angela Merkel, and the Finance Minister, Wolfgang Schäuble.
0: And they were not on the same. Uh... Oh, the,
1: the, it was the my- mightiest of clashes. It was worse than the clash between Greece and the Troika. The clash between Schäuble and Merkel. You should hear him speak about her.
0: Privately to you, I yeah, yeah.
1: You don't, you, I'm not going to delve into it. But it, it was a, a clear difference of opinion. Merkel and Draghi wanted to keep Greece in, in a debtor's prison. Schäuble wanted to kick Greece out in order to send the signal to Paris. This is what you get if you want to use the Deutschmark, Mark, the Euro, same thing, right? And you don't do as you're told. It was really very, a, a, you know, a very clear difference of opinion. Schäuble was the one who proposed to make Grexit. I never threatened him with Grexit. Oh, All yes. I said was, I'm not taking another credit card from you, mate. Because we were bankrupt since 2010, and the crime against logic that was being imposed upon Greece by the Troika, was they forced us to pretend we're not bankrupt. And the only way you can force somebody to pretend they're not bankrupt is by forcing them to to borrow more money. And under conditions of austerity that shrinks your income, which was not enough to pay the previous debts, let alone the new debts. Okay, so I was saying to him, I'm not signing. You know, imagine you, you you owe money to the bank. You can't pay because your incomes come down. And you go to the bank and say, let's restructure my debt. Reduce the amount Mm. of debt so I can pay it. Because if you ask me to pay it, I'll go bankrupt, and you'll get nothing. This is what bankers do every day. Imagine if the bank were to say, I'm going to give you another credit card from which you're going to draw money with an interest, hefty interest, to repay the previous credit cards. But the condition for giving you that new credit card is that you will shrink your income you would look at the bank and say, have gone completely nuts? As if I'm going to say that. As if I'm going to to say yes to that. So, uh, my line to Schäuble was, I'm not taking another credit card, pretending that I'm going to pay you back, on condition of destroying what is left of my people. And his argument was, okay, you're right, this doesn't work. He confessed that what he was proposing to us, what the Troika was pushing down our throat, would never work. Lagarde confessed that to Mm. me too. Um, her argument was, yes, but you're right, but you, know, you have to do what you're told, because otherwise your credibility as a politician is mm-hmm. going to suffer. I thought, yeah, who gives a shit what my credibility as a politician suffers or doesn't suffer? Um, so when Schäuble says to me, it doesn't work, I said, okay, so why are you pushing it down my throat? If it doesn't work and we agree on lot, what works? And he said, get out of the euro. Oh, yeah. And that, at that point, at that point, I exploited, and I think effectively the clash between Merkel and Schäuble. The moment he said to me, that's in my book, the moment he said to me, uh, get out of the euro, I said, Wolfgang, you're a great believer in democratic legitimacy. He kept on talking about the importance of legitimacy. I said, do you have a mandate from your chancellor to say this to me? (laughs) He said, no, not yet. I said, hang on a second. I take my phone out, I called Tsipras in front of him, put it on speakerphone. I said, Wolfgang just said to me that he proposed that we get out of the euro and that a large part of the debt is written off, of course. If you don't have euros, you don't pay in euros. You pay in souvlaki, right? (laughs) You know, or pistachios or something. Um, uh, I've got a question for you, Alexei. Do you authorize me to have this discussion with him? And he said, "Mm -mm, yeah, okay." but not that we are accepting it, just authorized to find out what he's offering. In front of her. Put the phone down. Put the... Your turn. He said, oh, I I'm not going to speak to her now, I'm going to speak to her tomorrow, I'll call you back. Eh? We, we talked again a couple of days later. So what happened? He said, no, look, I fear that if I tell her she's not going to give the OK. So you know, I was playing this that game, and in the end he never got the OK to discuss this with me. Okay, but you see, the, 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 this is... This, the, so, Grexit was never their strategy. It was Schäuble's strategy, and Merkel always vetoed it. Look, in the end, to cut a long story short, I think that on the balance of probabilities, if we, and this is a delicious paradox, one of those that you love, if we were prepared to get out of the euro, we wouldn't have to get out of the euro. If we were prepared to see it all the way to the end of the line, because the threat was we'll throw you out, we'll shut your banks, and then you'll have to create your own currency. If we said yes, as I was ready to do, mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. I'm going to issue my own currency, whatever the cost. You know, freedom has no price. We will do it. If we were prepared to do it, they would come to us at the 11th hour begging us not to do it, and we would have the dead haircut that we needed. So
0: that was the plan, that's what I that wanted the
1: plan. to hear. Yeah. But at the same time, it was not bluffing, because people said to me, oh, this is poker. No, it's not poker. Because to bluff in, in cards, it means to pretend that you, will, that you have a power that you don't have. I was not pretending. I was going to take it all the way to the end with a drachma. So I had a, what in game theory we call a dominant strategy. A dominant strategy is the one that you should follow, or you should want to follow, independently of what the other side does, right? Then that's not bluffing; it's the the definition of not bluffing.
0: Okay, okay. Uh, I would like to go on indefinitely yeah, go on. here, but let's go because to because there's uh, no pub- no
1: study. public intellectual discussion so far. Yeah,
0: but for this when. People, that's to say me, take power, you get two years in Gulag. But that's uh, <laughs> another story. So, seriously. So you think, if I may quote the immortal comrade Stalin, that in the choice Merkel versus Schäuble, which was worse, they were both worse. Or is there...
1: Uh, I preferred Schäuble any time.
0: Huh? Yeah. yeah. That's good to know. Yes, me yeah, also.
1: Because, because you see, if he, ha- if he was chancellor, he and I would have an agreement. Who would get out of the euro we would not end up in that that debtor's prison forever. Um, Or we wouldn't get out of the way. The one thing we agreed on, because it was a a really dramatic moment. Mm -hmm. It's captured in in the movie by Costa Gavras, of Mm -hmm. Adults in the Room. I've tried to capture it. Who
0: plays you, Brad Pitt or who? A Greek guy. (laughs) guy. Because
1: because Costa Gavras... It was going to be Ray Fiennes, by the way. Sorry? It was going to be Ray Fiennes, but then Costa Gavras decided that he wants realism, which is a very bad idea in art. Very
0: bad idea, yeah. Very bad
1: idea. <laughs> uh, he wanted, realism meant that when, I spoke, when my character spoke to the Tsipras character, we should be speaking in fluent Greek. Yeah. And when I would speak to them, I would be in English. So you know, no non-Greek actor could ever yeah, do yeah, that. Yeah.
2: Right?
1: <laughs> so, um, But you know, the, 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 there was this moment when, it was, I believe it was June 2015, I was in the finance ministry in Berlin. By the way, you know what that building is? Sorry? Do you know what the building of the Ministry of Finance is? What is it? No, don't. You don't know. It's Goering's headquarters.
0: That's what I know, but I don't know where it is. But this I knew, yeah.
1: It's the same building. It's (laughs) mind-numbingly toxic to get into that building. You can feel the aura. Uh, And it's ugly. A
0: sin, I mean, anyway. Is sin ugly for you?
1: Well, this is is my anglo-saxon i right? I didn't mean it. Sin is wonderful. Um, Okay, so he was pushing me, pushing me, pushing me to sign, and I kept saying no, no, no. And at some point I said, he was becoming very assertive. And I said, look, Wolfgang, I'm not going to sign, but I would like to ask you for a favor. You've been in this business for 40 years politics. I've been in this business for four months. Can I can we pretend for 10 minutes that we're not ministers so that you can give me your advice not to order me what to do? He said, okay. Very sort of um, in a friendly manner. And he, he was quite magnanimous at that moment. I said, okay. We're not ministers now. Tell me, if you were me, would you sign? And to my astonishment, he looked outside the window. For a while. You know, it's nerve-wracking. And then he looked at me, and at that moment, I actually liked the man. He said, as a patriot, no. And then I said, so why are you forcing me to do it?" don't you understand what am I going to do with Paris they want to have the Deutschmark and they want to run their own national budget you can't have both so every time you use the euro remember it's the Deutschmark don't mistake it for a European currency
0: okay I'm so sorry we could go endlessly in this way but let's go to the next big just one remark which you will like I remember that when we first met around that time, I was immediately attracted by why? you told me. You told me, and you repeated it now, but not as brutally as I will say now, that your message to Schäuble and so on was, what I'm bringing you is the most rational way to get some of your money back. You are not playing this sentimental violin, we are poor people. No, No. no, you wanted them to get some money back. You were honest
1: here. You know, the, the, you know, you've heard of Amartya Sen, the yeah, economist, yeah, yeah. Indian economist. Nice guy. Very, uh, really? very, very uh, clever guy. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I have problems with the yeah. Indian, because, but that's uh, minor yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. I, I, he, he He's a smart man. I, right. I met him in London um, after the, the end of this period mm. when I had resigned. And he said, you know, Yanis, what your problem was? He had gotten it. He said you were negotiating with creditors who did not want their money back. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. They didn't want their money back. They wanted to crash us. In which case, we should simply have agreed to get out of the euro. But, you know, at the same time, Merkel, who was above that, she had a good concept of what was at stake. Because she had German manufacturers, Volkswagen, Siemens, and so on, holding her to not letting the euro crash, because the last thing that they wanted was the recreation of the Italian national currency, the lira, because they hated the lira before 2000. Why? Because every time Volkswagen became slightly more competitive than the equivalent fiat, the Italian central bank would devalue the lira and make it cheaper. And German industrialists hated that. So, you know, Merkel had them in mind, whereas Schäuble had a more
0: hegemonic
1: power game in his mind.
0: Okay, now you already approached the second question where I'm even more, if this is possible, on your side. As it's already clear with this wonderful paradoxical, paradoxical formula that you propose, that you have a creditor who does not want you to repay the debt, isn't it, we talked about this often, one of the features of, I don't know how to call it, new face in the world order, where, as you told me, we no longer live in this traditional neoliberal market order, and so on, and so on. Uh, you, I remember, we were uh, talking even on phone, you remember that moment, I think it was in the spring or summer of 2020, when on the, almost the same day, that the numbers came out from United Kingdom and United States of how the production fell down, stock market went up. And then you say there is something tremendous happening now in capitalism. It's no longer the old market, profit, productivity, and so on. It's
1: no, no longer capitalism.
0: Can you develop this?
1: Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to that date. Thank you for reminding me. It was the 12th, 12th of August 2020. Not last August, the previous one. Nine o'clock in the morning in London, the news came out that the national income of Britain, GDP as it's called, had fallen by more than 20%. That had never happened before in the history of capitalism. British GDP falling in one year by 21% or so. Never. It was not anticipated. The markets were expecting a fall of 8, 9, 10%, 20%, no one, no one. 15 or or 16 minutes later, the stock exchange, the London stock exchange, goes up by 3%. There can be no explanation of that along the lines of capitalism. Right? one explanation would have been if the markets were already factoring in expecting a 10% decline and it was um, uh, 8% things were better than expected so the stock exchange might have gone up but to expect 10% and to have 20% and the stock exchange to go up something else was going on I know what it is, I'll tell you what it is since 2008 the great uh, financial crash capitalism is on a drip feed it's being kept alive through constant injunctions of money from the central banks that has never happened before it started in 2008 in 1929 it didn't happen that's why all the banks closed down mm. uh, so the banking system and the stock exchange had 12 years of getting used to becoming addicted to central bank money, being pumped their way during difficult moments. So, imagine you're a stockbroker in London. You hear the news at 9 o'clock in the morning. Minus 20 percent. Oh, my God! You think that's the first thought. Then you think, ah, if I panicked, the guys and girls in the Bank of England, the central Bank of England, are panicking. So what they're going to do is they're going to print even more billions, and they will give it to me to play in the stock exchange. Bye. So, the, 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 the point I've been developing in my head, and we had a little discussion about this earlier, because I was telling Slavoj that this will be my next book next, next year, uh, it's my crazy theory that capitalism has already evolved out of itself. We, it has been transformed into another system. Uh, and the reason why I say that is because, for me, capitalism re- requires two things. Firstly, Profit to drive it. It's like you know a petrol engine that needs petrol. Capitalism needs profit, private profit to drive it. Capital accumulation, as we Marxists used to say. Okay. And the other thing is that exploitation takes place in markets. That's the whole point about capitalism. And in feudalism, there was there was no market exploitation. You had the peasants. They were growing rubbish, and wheat and potatoes and cauliflower. I don't know what it is that they were growing, and then the sheriff, sheriff, on behalf of the Lord, would come and take half of it, or 60% of it. There was no market. It was just expropriation. It is with the enclosures and the eviction of the peasants, who then become uh, suppliers of labor at any price, that you have the creation of the working class and the labor market. There was no labor market before that. So, exploitation takes place through markets. Money markets, land markets, house markets, labour markets. But now, after 12 years of the 2008 crisis and beyond, we have the replacement of profit by central bank money. That is the new fuel of the system, of this exploitative system. And the steady encroachment into the space of markets, of platforms. Amazon. The moment you go into Amazon or Facebook. The moment you, you enter Facebook, you're outside of capitalism. You're not in capitalism anymore. You because, end... explain. Yeah. You go into Facebook, right? Let's say you want to, to, to sell your stuff, to you know, advertise your business in Facebook. You go in, you, pay, you use your credit card, you pay money to Zuckerberg. And some more people see your your advertisements. Right? Um, You go in there to meet your friends. Uh, You want to advertise um, this, this evening. You go and pay money. One person owns the whole digital space. It is the equivalent of stepping outside in Ljubljana. Imagine, yeah, just science fiction for a moment. Imagine you step out in Ljubljana, on the streets of Ljubljana tonight. And you look around and you think, oh my God, All these buildings belong to one person. Everything that is traded in the shops that I see is controlled by one person who decides what prices are charged, what prices are not charged, who can trade, who can't trade, who can buy, who can't buy. And moreover, imagine that Ljubljana operated like Facebook does or Amazon does, whereby what your eyes see is determined by one person, by the algorithm of one person if he wants you not to see something, you will never see it in that digital space. This is not a market. This is a fief, a fiefdom. It's a digital fiefdom. It's a platform. Those platforms make a lot of money. But the rest of the economy... Uh, look at companies like Uber, for instance. They've never made a profit, ever. You have private equity. Have you heard of private equity? Do you know what private equity does? They, go and the, you know, they buy a company let's say, a company that provides health services. It's got doctors and nurses and Mm -hmm. stuff, private stuff. So they buy the hospital, they buy the, the, the company, and then they create two companies. One that owns the buildings and all the fixed assets, and the other that provides the services. And the second company sells the services to the first company. The first company has assets, buildings. So they go to the bank and they get a huge loan using as collateral, the buildings of the first company. They take this money and they give it to themselves. They pay themselves. They give it to the shareholders. They pocket it. They put it in their money. Now, the, this whole company will never have a profit, because the second company will owe huge quantities of money to the first company. And therefore, they will never pay any tax, because if you have no profits, there is no tax. But the, the, you know, the whole point about profitability is coming out. Very soon after that, this is an empty shell. This will go bankrupt. It will die. So platforms are expanding even in health. Facebook is now privatising the national health service in Britain without anybody knowing. Google is doing the same thing behind the scenes. By the way, DM25, our movement, is beginning a campaign on Monday in Britain against the um, uh, surreptitious privatisation of the NHS by big tech. Uh, Close brackets. So you see, platforms are expanding. They are not markets, and markets are shrinking. And central bank money, sovereign money, they defends money, because they are defend, the, the governments. They have no power, but their printing presses are keeping the system al- alive. I call this techno-feudalism. And it's not just a question of curiosity about how the system works. It's also a question of what does this mean for daily lives? What, what does it mean for all of us? What does I it mean about gov- for governments? I'll tell you what it means as an economist for a start. It means that none of the fiscal monetary policies that used to work, work. Because when you, 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 platforms replace markets and everything depends on the central bank money, if, you are, if I make you the head of the European Central Bank tomorrow, you are the most slavish follower of the needs of business. You have no independence. You have no authority. If, even if you want to re- re- reduce the amount of money Euros that the ECB prints, you can't do it. The moment you do it, the whole thing will collapse. That's not central bank independence, that's dependence. Um, it means that you know, our governments are completely in the clasps of the interests of these large fiefdoms, and they have tiny degrees of freedom regarding fiscal policy, regarding redistribution of wealth, when all the wealth is encased and enclosed... in the new uh, fiefdoms. But also when... And here is something that would be nice to talk a little bit more, more about. Look, under standard capitalism, you have a working class... which is exploited during the working time... and then they go home... And that's time for themselves. Today, you have a proletariat, a working class, which is shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. And increasingly, everybody is producing capital directly for these fiefdoms. Every time you have your phone and you walk around, Google knows where you are. And that enriches the software of Google Maps. It adds your movements, add capital to Google. You're not a shareholder. You don't get shares for that capital. They get it, right? Um, with the pandemic, we've seen how work and leisure have been completely decoupled. And how with these digital fiefdoms technologies, uh, it is impossible to even escape for a moment the vestiges of work. It follows you. you know, your boss expects you to be checking your app in, at midnight. Uh, you yourself check your app, even if your boss doesn't want you to check your app. You, you become self-enslaved. And the most, important, the most important value of liberalism, which is personal sovereignty, goes. Think of the youngsters. You know, I used to be a professor up until a few years ago. I still am in, in name. But I look at today's youth, and what I find is young people lacking the sovereignty that the liberal democratic system has promised them. I see them, for instance, take on courses... that they know are rubbish. Just to add to the CV. I see them constantly trying to improve... their social ratings in Twitter, in Instagram. Because they are selling themselves constantly. They are creating a profile that makes them... because they know that the moment they go in for an interview that the interviewing panel is going to check their social uh, media profile. So it's a constant struggle to build up a profile along the lines of the expectations of some fictitious future employer. That is slavery. The complete collapse of the private space that liberals value so much. These are the reasons why, for me, techno-feudalism you know, is um, such a menace. And The worst p- part of it is that when I, try to, when I speak of this, do you know who really loathes my thesis more than anybody else? The left. Because we leftists grew up with this ambition that we would bring capitalism down. And here I'm telling them that, you know what, We're out of time. Capitalism has brought itself down. And it's been replaced by something far worse, not by socialism. The left does not want to listen to that. They really loathe that message.
0: Uh, Perfect. Now we are going in the right direction. A sub-question. A A sub-question. I know there are many answers to this, but you are, for me, for the time being, still some kind of subject supposed to know. So one of the enigmas from a very superficial standpoint, I know there are many explanations, I want to hear yours, is with all this money thrown into, why is there no inflation? Do you think now there are only lately some fears of inflation? What's your answer to the inflation
1: problem? Uh, Between 2008 and the, the pandemic, we had the constant manufacture of mountain ranges of money that was thrown into the economy. The the traditional monetarists, right-wing economists were saying, oh, this is going to create inflation. No, zero inflation. The Central banks were struggling to create inflation. They couldn't. They were pumping money into the economy, hoping prices would go up. They wouldn't. Prices would be stagnant or falling. Why was that the case? Well, that, 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 uh, while wealth was going up, wealth of very, very few. Because think about it. 2008 was our 1929, complete collapse of the financial sector, immediately a recession, very low investment, very low investment, very low uh, demand, high, low quality jobs, as David Graeber called them, bullshit jobs. Uh, okay, So that was the, the scene since 2008. The central bank prints money. What is the theory of quantitative easing, as it's called? Money printing. The, you, you know, it, you, up until 2008, the idea was that if you want to stimulate the economy through the central bank, you reduce interest rates. Well, you can't reduce them when they are at zero. I mean, you can. You can take them to zero minus 0.5. But if you take them to minus 3%, would you keep money in the bank if you lost 3% every, every month? <laughs> so nobody, the banking system will be destroyed. So. The, they reached the lower zero bound, and then they had to do something to stimulate further. So they started printing money. But the thing is, in capitalism, as we had it in the last 100 years, since the creation of the Fed, the Central Bank of the United States and so on, the legal structure is this. You have a central bank. The central bank is not like other banks. You and I cannot have accounts with the central bank, but the banks... Have an account with the central bank. So, all the commercial banks have an account with the central bank. The central bank, if it wants to create money, it effectively gives an overdraft facility. It types numbers, you know, a few billion into the accounts of the commercial banks, hoping that the commercial banks will get that money, it's free money, to lend it to businesses who are then going to take it and invest it, you know, hire people, invest in machinery, education training and so on. Right? That's the theory. What's the reality? The reality, and I have witnessed that, I have to tell you. The reality is this. Take the European Central Bank. I could take the Fed or any other, but we are in the Eurozone, so I'll take the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank, somebody from the office, the staff, calls up Deutsche Bank. Says, um, I've got a couple of trillion euros. I will give it to you at minus 0.5 interest rate. You know what that means. I will pay you to take it. I will pay you 0.5% to take it. I mean, who in their right mind says no? Imagine if I were to say, that I'm going to pay you to take money off my hands. So Deutsche Bank says, give it to me. Now, Deutsche Bank looks at all the people out there who suffer austerity, who have bullshit jobs, and says, yeah, as if I'm going to lend it to them. <laughs> I will never get it back. <laughs> So you know what Deutsche Bank does? Picks up the phone and calls Volkswagen. Siemens, Alstom, Google, Apple. Huh? And say, um, would you like some free money? I've got a few billion here. I'll give it to you for free. Zero. The Deutsche Bank has already made a profit. It's been paid for by the central bank to take it. And it's giving it away for free. You know, it's a very easy life. For those, uh, For those people. <laughs> Volkswagen, already by the way, Google. You know, Google, uh, a- Apple Apple has $210 billion of savings. Just, just stating that, you know there's something really wrong with capitalism, because companies should never save. You and I should save, and companies should borrow it from us to invest. When the companies have billions of savings, there's something wrong. Close bracket again. But nevertheless, you know, Volkswagen has billions in the bank, which is not investing, it's too fearful. Why is Volkswagen not investing? They could have created a Tesla competitor, but they look at you folks and say, yes, if they will be able to buy it. they useless, poor folks. They can't afford to pay 100,000 euros for a top-of-the-range Tesla competitor. Mm. So Instead, they do something simpler. They take the money from Deutsche Bank and they go to the Frankfurt Stock Exchange, and you know what they do? They buy Volkswagen shares. Volkswagen buys Volkswagen shares. Guess what happens to the share price? Goes up. Their own salaries, the Volkswagen directors, are linked to the share price. So they get money out of that, personal money, not as a company, and they go to Berlin and buy a nice apartment. House prices go up. So if you have apartments in Berlin, you benefit from that too. There is a lot of asset price inflation, Hmm? but the little people out there don't have money to buy anything, so there's no price inflation. So that was the situation up until now. Now things are getting slightly demented and different. What happened was COVID-19. During this period of globalization, of the neoliberal story, not the reality, the story, Um, whereas once upon a time you had a car that was being made in two plants. There was a plant here making engines and another one making the chassis and and the car and then they would bring them together. In the last 30 years, I was reading about that, a Nissan uh, Qashqai made in Newcastle in North England was made in 120 different places and the um, the, the fender, the protective piece of plastic at the front, crisscrossed between Britain and uh, and the continent thirty-five times before it was completed. First, it would go as metal. Then they would do something. And then they would go back. Then they would put some lights on. Then they would go back. So this is what I mean by supply chains. Mm. Lots of transporting. Yeah? Uh, and a supply network that was working like a Swiss watch, beautifully. Everything measured the last moment, just in moment, you know, no, 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 no warehouses to save on money. So it would be a system that worked like clockwork. You know, you would need a shock absorber, and suddenly the shock absorber would arrive in the truck. You wouldn't have to store it anywhere. Okay, But the moment COVID-19 hit and the governments pressed the stop button, all those factories stopped working. Now, the ships that were, the container ships, that were carrying stuff from China to Los Angeles, you know, industrial goods, iPhones, right, whatever, they were in mid-journey. They were in the middle of the Pacific. They couldn't stop. So they went to, to Los Angeles. They all accumulated in Los Angeles. They got there. The ports were not working, nothing was working. They got stuck there. Okay? Similarly, the, uh, the tankers carrying LNG, liquid uh, gas, from Qatar to China, continued and ended up in China, unloaded the LNG, mm-hmm. right? S- stayed there. Then when they pressed the green button again for the whole system to work again, it couldn't work. Why? Because all the ships that should carry stuff that was being produced in China were all in Los Angeles. And all the ships that were carrying energy from Qatar to China were in China. Now, you may say that, okay, well, how long does it take for those ships to go back? It takes a month. Yeah, it takes a month, but it doesn't solve the problem because by the time they're back, the stockpiles are huge. Meanwhile, COVID-19 meant that consumer demand for goods went up because we were all stuck inside the house and we were ordering stupid things to, to pass the time with, right? So demand went up Stockpiles went up and the supply chains broke down. That pushed energy prices up. That pushed um, transport price. Now, there is another element here which uh, you won't hear many people telling you this, but that's why it's important that I should let you into the secret. Capitalism works on the basis of futures markets. The great money, the great profits are not made so much in buying and selling stuff but in buying and selling the right to buy and sell stuff, right So people go to the Chicago um, Exchange and they buy um, next year's oranges, juice. oranges juice that doesn't exist, which will exist next year. They can do the same thing with transport. They can buy transport capacity now for the next 10 years. <coughs> so speculators who saw who. Predicted that the transport costs for a container would go up because of this, of what I mm-hmm. j- just described, they went in and bought the transport capacity of you know, 80% of shipping all at once. And their game now is to starve the market of transport capacity in order to, sh- to push the price mm-hmm. up further. So you, you, the, these futures capitalist markets are turbocharging the problem that COVID-19 created with with, with supply chains, uh, and same, similarly with energy. With energy, you have other aspects too. You have Vladimir Putin, who is playing games with the European Union in order to force the Europe to force to Know, to convince the European Union, <laughs> to give the green light... a to
0: democratic to debate. debate. Yes. Yes.
1: To, to give the green light to, <clears throat> to the Nord Stream 2 pipeline <clears throat> that bypasses Ukraine and going through down but the Baltic Street to Germany. Uh, he's reducing the supply of energy at a time when, for some reason, wind, I've been told, has died down in the last eight months compared to the average strength of the wind in the North Sea and across Europe which meant that wind power generation went down at the time when the supply of gas... By because of So there are... Okay, these things should iron themselves out very quickly. But when you throw in the speculation, uh, it's much easier to see how these problems are magnified and stretched into the future. Now, with working classes the precariat, the weaker members of society, having suffered 12, 30 years of this deflation, while the rich are getting richer through the process of money printing by the central banks that they describe, when these people are facing deflation, they have incredibly bad jobs. They are now facing increases in their rents. They're facing increases in their electricity bill and so on. you realize that, 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 that their circumstances are becoming increasingly unbearable, even though for the last 12 years they were almost used to unbearable circumstances. This is now getting deeper and worse. Add to this the terrible authoritarianism of states and governments that, through COVID-19, discovered that they can do anything they want with us. Because think about it. I mean, it I'm, I'm not against lockdowns if you have a pandemic, but the power to say to people you're not going to stay out of your home is an exorbitant power. And when you've had government after government after government serving the interests of the 1% of the 1%, naturally authoritarian, increasingly authoritarian with COVID-19, it is really very easy if you combine the discontent felt by rising prices falling quality of jobs quality of jobs not so much quantity but mm-hmm. bullshit jobs multiplying with fear of the system with mistrust in the government you bring all these things together and this is a
0: great gift
1: for fascists
0: that's it okay let's now do the next step uh, from and i agree with the dark image you painted of where we are. Okay, there is now an... Why the answer that I will give you now, and I don't believe in it, but I want from you a theoretical okay. confirmation, <laughs> uh, because a naive old Marxist leftist would have said, perfect, with these neo feudal corporations, Everything is already there, centralized, we just boom, boom, nationalize it, and we are in happy, So Why this doesn't work? Because it seems at some naive point the obvious thing to do.
1: I said that to the good people of Google inside their den. They were very kind. A few years ago, they invited me to go to their campus in California to give a speech. Inside of Google, I entered Google and gave a speech. On, and they asked me to speak about digital money, which, of course, they're very interested in. And what I said to them was, well, not exactly that, but I said, look, the problem with you guys is that you know, your search technology is so stupendously wonderful that you have invented a human right, the right to do a Google search. Because if you now, given that this is now available for everybody, mm. if, you, if you deny you or you or you, if somebody, let's say the government, the world, mm. extraterrestrials, deny you the right to use Google, they're denying you a human right. It's so important to be able to search stuff on Google's search engine that its denial is an, aberration, an abdication of a human right. So, the problem, however, is that if you have invented a human right, if it is a human right, you have no right to own it. So, you should be all be nationalized.
0: Yeah. And, like. They looked at me. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, just kidding. So, I, I continued to, to <laughs> the next one. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: have,
1: either they would have kicked me out or gotten a heart attack. So,. Um, the problem, however, with nationalizing is that these are not national corporations. Hmm? Google is not a national corporation. What nation, what country, what, what state is going to nationalize Google? Even the United States cannot do it. They're everywhere. They're in every nook and cranny of the digital space of planet Earth. Facebook, how do you nationalize Facebook? You can internationalize it, but for that we need a world government. And the moment we start, start saying that, you know, I think half of the people in here will leave. All right? Um, for me, the trick is to create a transnational movement that challenges the ownership of corporations. Since the 16th century, we have a monstrosity that is growing within the bosom of our societies. The idea of liquid ownership of shares. Think about it. We take it for granted. Okay, I could have a, a corner shop that makes bicycles. I can sell it to Slavoj. That makes some kind of sense. But the idea that you have a large corporation, and you take the ownership of that corporation, and you slice it up in tiny little pieces, called shares, which then trade anonymously, like confetti, like, you know, baseball cards in, in the United States. And decision-making about what that company does is based on the general assembly of the shareholders, who are anonymous. And the more you, you, of those pieces of paper you've bought, the more votes you have in the General Assembly. Now, if we didn't have the capitalism, imagine this is the 16th century, and I were to propose this system to you, you would have thought, I'm mad. And you, very rightly so. We know what happened with the first joint stock company. It was the British East India company. 1599, London. It was at a time when Hamlet was finishing, not Hamlet. Shakespeare was finishing Hamlet, not the other way around. Okay. Within 10 years, that company became bigger than the British state. They had 200,000 soldiers with which they expropriated India, Indonesia. They destroyed millions of people's lives. And this is the very basis of capitalism. The idea of as many vo- uh, votes as, I, as, I, as I, I can buy depending on, on, on wealth, because you see there, I mean Jeff Bezos became by, what by 50 billion dollars richer during the pandemic. He, was, he, he didn't do anything during the pandemic. He's a smart man. there's no doubt that Jeff Bezos is smarter than I am. He's a far better entrepreneur than I am. that goes without saying, okay. Um, But the 50 billion that he made during the pandemic, he didn't work for. He was making it in in his sleep. You know, the wealth he had in the stock exchange was breeding more wealth. Um, And, by the way, in in, in ancient Greek and in Greek, uh, the word for interest is the same as uh, the word for giving birth. Actually, labor, female labor. so I have a very simple alternative to taking over and nationalizing. So who's going to run Facebook? I mean, if you my, imagine if I made you managing director of Facebook. I mean, we would shut it down. It would stop fun functioning. Or me, for that matter. This is not uh, taking shots, cheap shots at Slavoj. Um, imagine if we had a very simple change in corporate law where we say that Shares become like library cards in a university. You enroll in a university, you get a library card. It gives you privileges. You can take books out. You can connect to the internet. You can go into venues. You can vote in elections, students' union Right? You can't sell that card. You cannot hire it. You cannot lease it. You cannot buy it. There's no market for it. It is your right to have it, like a vote in the political arena. Right? You can have it, you can use it, but you can't sell it or buy it. Um, At least not formally. Uh, Imagine how that would transform the world. Suddenly, Facebook will belong only to people who, who work there. And imagine if at the same time, you introduced another change in ownership rights so that people own their own data and Facebook cannot touch it without paying you. The world is transformed. All of a sudden, those large companies are going to shrink. Why would they shrink? Because you know, if you have a company with 800,000 workers and they all have one share each, um, they can't run it. It's too many. It's, you know, the optimal size is what? At most 10,000 people. So they would themselves decide, you don't even need the state to come in a Stalinist way and take it over and break it down. This is why I put a lot of emphasis on, as Marx did, yeah, wishy-washy stuff about social justice and equality that for me means nothing. It is simply bourgeois claptrap for the purposes of massaging our conscience. You want to talk seriously seriously about liberating people from the shackles in which they live, change ownership rights, change corporate law and make shares non-tradable, one person, one share, one vote.
0: Next step, Uh, uh, okay, we shouldn't, I don't know what time is it, but we still have at least two important points. One is, we are both, on the one hand, critical of China, People's Republic, the big one, but at the same time, we don't simply buy... The Western narrative, you know, evil, totalitarian, China, the threat to, and so on. This afternoon we talked about uh, a figure, I suppose you, well, go to Google and search for him, uh, Wang Kuning, who is now probably the most influential intellectual in the world because in China the real power is in the seven members of sitting committee of the <laughs> Politburo or he is one of them. It's an extremely... Is he, ind- the,
1: is he the, the, the modern version of Suslov? Do you remember Suslov?
0: My... Don't... Now we are entering erotic, erotic season because <laughs> Suslov is my favorite... <laughs> now you will have to suffer one minute. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know why? You know who was? Mikhail Suslov, the embodiment of the irrationality of Soviet system. That's right. He was extremely influential. But you know what was his function? And he survived them all. Stalin, Khrushchev... Everybody. Brezhnev. He had... These were pre-digital times. He had pre-digital times. A couple of shelves with thousands of cards, quotes from Lenin, for all occasions. <laughs> if, for example, Russia wanted a war with Finland '39, he found a quote from Lenin that in Russia, and all of them from Stalin onwards came to him. <laughs> this is the party line. Finds quotes from Lenin to to support it. To support it. And it's incredible how. What he did didn't have any influence.
1: It's a bit like the Bible. Yeah. You can support anything. There's yeah. some line in the Bible that supports whatever you do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Suslov, yes. And uh, I wonder if we ever get close to power. I want to be Suslov, no, not, not you. But that's another story. OK, sorry.
1: If Let... we go close anywhere near power,
0: yeah. I'll be in the Gulag, and he'll be in the Politburo. Absolutely. And I will repeat my joke. I told this to Peter Sloterdijk already. And even if you are in Gulag, I will still show my friendship to you. You know how. In Gulag, every Sunday, you get a little bit better soup. Two, two rotten heads of a fish or something like that. I will make a call from Moscow you will get double portion of this soup (laughs) every Sunday. But let's go on on serious stuff. (laughs) No, this guy in China, uh, Wang Kuning, he is incredibly intelligent. He wrote 30 years ago, in the late 80s. He visited for a couple of uh, months United States, studied everyday life and so on, and worked uh, wrote a book, America Against America, where he, what he wrote there is today with Trump and so on, more true than ever. He saw the creativity, but at the same time, the uh, decadent, self-destroying elements of the uh, American uh, system, and his big fear was, if China is exploding in this new capitalism, no. how to prevent Americanization mm-hmm. in this destructive aspect? That's the reason, it's not simple totalitarianism. What he is the ideologist, so media claim, uh, behind what President Xi is doing now. Which is what? Remember, a double... At two levels, these so-called, but we wrongly call them like this, reforms. I was shocked. I cannot but repeat the joke that I already told it to you. I said, I read that the Chinese authorities party prohibited something called 996. Now, I was a little bit shocked from my decadent uh, late 60s, sexual revolution years. I didn't participate in it, but I knew what's going on. <laughs> 69 was associated with double uh, oral sex, you know. So I said, what's happening? Like, like uh, the, the, the Politburo, the Communist Party prohibiting certain sexual practice, no? No, then I learned. It's a very sad story. 996 means the practice imposed by big corporation in China Six days a week you work 12 hours, nine to nine. But I wasn't totally wrong in my reading because this guy, Wang Huning, openly describes himself as a neoconservative. He, even between the lines, gets, uh, delivers an insight with which I fully agree. That, and Alain you hates me for saying this, that. The real cause of this... Exploding capitalism in China was the big cultural revolution, which destroyed tradition and created, you know, empty subjects. The big thing during cultural revolution was destroy monuments, get rid of Confucian past, and so on. So now Wang Huning's problem is how to keep, The capitalist dynamic, but with more justice, more moral authority, and so on, and so on. Okay. Mm. I just described the situation which you should read about others. My question to you. Can it, will it work? Does it have a chance?
1: Does what have a chance? China?
0: No, this strategy specific. Let's call it neoconservative strategy of combining, keeping capitalist dynamic, but uh, uh, Van Kuning emphasizes also cultural values and so on. You know. I don't think it
1: does. I don't think it does have a chance. Sorry? I don't think it does.
0: I also, but, uh, but why not? I can, uh, this well, is my feminine intuition. You are the man here. You.
1: I have no idea, but I will start speaking, giving an answer, hoping that I will form it by the time I reach the end of the sentence. Is so that okay?
0: you're talking like a Hegelian. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, to begin with, let me make a political statement about China. I am a liberal Marxist. In China, I would probably be under house arrest or even worse, probably in some cell. When the Hong Kong Polytechnic students rose up and they were brutally beaten by police, I supported them. When it comes to the Uyghurs, Tibet and so on, I'm more than happy to come out and condemn with all my strength the authoritarianism of the Chinese Communist Party. But at the same time, folks, Trump Trump started a new Cold War against China. It was his choice, his geostrategic and ideological choice. He even went against Apple for producing iPhones in Shenzhen. It was a Trumpian choice. I'm not saying that it's wrong because it was Trump, but I remind you that this was Trump's choice. Biden comes along and he adopts it completely and actually turbocharges it as well. So there's an attempt now to create a new Cold War, uh, which could even become hot with the stupidity about Taiwan and so on, because they're upping the ante there. And you can see that the European Union is being forced, it's been dragged into this with Huawei to begin with, they banned any European country from having dealings with Huawei, even though Huawei had the best 5G system and the cheapest for our poorer countries, who have not been allowed to use it by the Americans, through Brussels. Uh, And there is an attempt to present China as the new Nazi regime. This is all dangerous stuff. China is uh, a very large country with ambition, a long memory, but they are not imperialist. They have never been imperialist. China has never colonized any place in the world. Even the skirmish with Vietnam was a skirmish about local issues. It was not an attempt to take over Vietnam. If they wanted to take over Vietnam, they would have taken over Vietnam. Uh, People say to me, what about Africa? Wherever you go in Africa, you find Chinese investment. Well, yes, the Chinese have a strategy of securing supplies of raw materials that they don't have. Uh, Long time ago, it was 2005, I was in uh, Ethiopia, and I was told by government officials that the airport, brand new airport back then, was built by the Chinese government for free. Okay, why are they doing that? for free. The Americans have never built anything for free, anyway, even when you hear the words "U.S. aid," it's not aid, it's loans, to be paid with interest, not the same. The reason is that, you know, they went to Angola, they went to Ethiopia, they went to wherever they thought they could find rare earths, or oil, or gas, eh? and they put the governments and the people into in their debt by building infrastructure, hoping that you know, when the deal would be made for all these uh, um, natural resources, they would get preferential tri- treatment. Okay. This is using one's exorbitant power in one's favor. Yeah. But compare and contrast with what the Europeans did in Africa. We destroyed a whole continent. We enslaved their people. We killed Lumumba. Lumumba. Not we, but imperialism did. We created South Africa. We created Europeans created South Africa. It was not the Africans who created apartheid. You know, we th- think of th- think of American imperialism. My country was a fascist dictatorship under the CIA, Chile, Iran, Mossadegh, and so on. What audacity to be accusing the Chinese of being imperialist? They are doing business. I remember when I was dealing with them with, as finance minister, the Troika had imposed upon the previous government that we give the port of Piraeus to Costco, a state-owned Chinese company. Of course, they took it. They wanted it, right? Whose fault was that? It was the fault of the European Troika and the American Troika forcing the Greek government to give the port of Piraeus to Costco. When I became minister for a short period of time, the the, the, the people at Costco and the Chinese government thought that I had power. <laughs> so did I for a few minutes. Okay? And when I negotiated with them, I said, I will tear up the contract and I want completely different uh, um, terms. Hugely in our favor, new terms. Like a loan of 10 billion, um, massive investment that they had not agreed to put into the port. Uh, and moving beyond the port, creating super-fast railway that we don't have in Greece. We still don't have. Um, And they said yes to everything. Now, if if that is imperialism, let's have a little bit more of it. And when you see that there is a lot of investment, and some of it is not good, in Serbia, for instance, in Montenegro, where they, they go in there and they give loans with 4% interest rate, which is very high for these days. Why are they getting into Southern and Eastern Europe? Because Europe is not investing. There's a vacuum. The European Union is not investing. Chinese money comes in. They don't bring in troops. They do not overthrow our governments. They do not spy on our politicians. So let's be very clear. The Chinese Communist Party's authoritarianism needs to be countered and criticized all the crimes against the Uyghurs and so on have to be called out and making no excuses for them. But at the same time, no cold war. What the Americans are doing there is twofold. First, they want one thing to take over their big tech. Because big tech is American. Google, Facebook and so on, they're all American. Europe has no competitors. Zero. We are a desert when it comes to big tech, and since big tech is going to be the future, the future will be American, it will not be European, because we've decided not to invest here in Europe, right? The only country that has worthy competitors to Amazon, Alibaba, to Google, to Uber and so on are the Chinese, because they've created a space in which they invested and their banking system, which they are not allowing Wall Street to take over. What the United States regime wants, uh, from Trump to Biden, is to take over Chinese finance and Chinese big tech, while trying to sell lots of armaments to Australia, to New Zealand, in the Pacific. You you heard about the deal with the so-called ACA's deal with the British and so on, which left Macron very peeved, (laughs) right? So this is arms deals and taking over the big tech and finance industries that the Chinese people have built up with a lot of care and with a great deal of ingenuity. Do we want to be part of this? I don't think so. Now, that was my statement. I had to make a political statement. I am a politician, after all. But to your question, I think that the the attempt to create an authoritarian conservative Confucian, whatever you want to call it, system in China is going to fail. Because in the end, the development of the means of production always clash with the antiquated social relations and prejudices.
0: Uh, sounds familiar. It's familiar, it the German eh? German guy said that. Yes, the yes.
1: German guy <laughs> said that. Um, <laughs> and President Xi already is showing signs of realizing that. The other day he came up with a remarkable statement. A remarkable statement. I really thought this guy or somebody behind him who wrote this text understands the stuff. He said the only way we are going to increase the wages of Chinese workers is if we reduce the growth rate of China. You'll never hear an American president say that, or a German president say that, or Chancellor. Okay? So he understands that what's going on in China is you have high, huge growth rates, which they engineered. But at the same time, to have those huge growth rates, there was a very strong class war against the working class of China. And now what he's saying is, we need to ameliorate for that. We need to rebalance it. We need to turn the tables against the capitalists of China. And this is the Chinese Communist Party that created the, the, the capitalists of China. So it's very interesting. And I don't think that it would be easy to contain the progressive forces within China in the way that uh, Confucian right wingers would like.
0: I agree with you here. And uh, just to supplement, maybe all of you, you should know this. Don't know. You know, no. I am in the same position as you. For example, since I also signed. Some uh, manifests against Hong Kong brutality and especially against some uh, students in Beijing universities who went, who wanted to organize uh, workers who yeah. were dying of pollution in the
1: New k- Marxist.
0: Sorry? The yeah. New, the new Marxists. They disappeared. <laughs> they literally, yeah. one story, I knew one, I was contact, he disappeared. His mother inquired too much what happened to him. The result is well known if you are Hegelian. Negation of negation. She disappeared also. (laughs) But what I want, uh, 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 what you have, immediately, I will not be long. What you have to remember is nonetheless, this is a big, as you said, non-imperialist trauma of China. Do you know that in 1820, China was not per capita, but absolute product, by far the economically strongest country in the world? Three times stronger than Great Britain. And do you know which was the second one? No. India. Yeah, yeah, also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you know then something happened? Uh, This was big business. In Bengal enormous amount of opium were grown to be uh, 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 to be exported to China. This was not a couple of merchants. This was because they
1: wanted tea. The British wanted tea from yeah. China because it was the best tea yeah. and Indian tea was rubbish. Yeah. So they grew opium in India yeah. and exported it
0: to China in exchange of the yeah. and then now comes the horror. The Chinese emperor wrote even desperate letters to the young queen, Victoria, and so on. She even didn't answer him, so the Chinese emperor just just uh, prohibited the import of opium. The result, you know, Great Britain, with the help of uh, some other Western powers, attacked China, with the wonderful justification. It was that free trade is the basis of civilization. Yes. If some country breaks this rule, it's returning, it's becoming barbarian, it has to be forced to be re-civilized. Now comes the tragedy. Do you know that in 1840-50, over half, around two-thirds of Chinese BMP, Brut National Product, disappeared? It was an undescribable economic, social catastrophe to imagine what it is. And I like to sell this to Americans. I haven't been to it. Like, imagine today, moral worth is the same. I like this idea. Uh, 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 who are the greatest, uh, uh, Colombia and who produces, Colombia and Mexico, uh, declaring war on the United States because they tried to stop opium exports from this country. Too. This is what they did. So, you know, the, what I'm saying is that, uh, as you, I disagree with many things the Chinese are doing, but the problems they are trying to deal with in this way are, my God, are the real problems of today. OK. I, to s- gradually conclude, do you want to add something here? I would like
1: uh, a few questions from the audience.
0: They will, after I finish. <laughs> <laughs> they will all be dead, then. Sorry? No, no, no. What I want to say is just to clarify the last okay. point where we are, as it were, in the same sheet, okay. which is, uh, and then the people are allowed their three minutes of let's play democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah Let's play yeah, yeah, yeah. democracy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, we were both absurdly accused of anti-Semitism and so on and all that. But it's absurd. But what I want to draw your attention, and it's especially, maybe you were not yet told, actual also here in Slovenia, where we have a government now which is, Officially, totally pro Israel. When there was that last conflict with uh, Hamas on the West Bank, you know that, Ugo- uh, Slovenia was, he said, together with that Slovenia was together with Hungary the only country which on all official buildings put together with Slovene and European flag also the Israeli flag. Now some. In some recent scandals, the European Union exploded against our Prime Minister about some remarks which can be anti-Semitic and so on, can be read in that way. And our defense was, but how? We totally support Israel. What they don't get is, and that's my question to you, would you buy this? I'm more and more convinced of it, and all my Israeli friends agree with it. One of the basic paradoxes today is the paradox of, mark my words, Zionist antisemitism. You find it already, it's incredible. You should read Theodor Herzl, uh, uh, Der Judenstadt, where he says already this formula that all antisemitic right-wingers like. Let's get rid of Jews here, send them to Palestine, in this way we get rid of them, but there they will bring Western civilization, there will be a wall against primitivism and so on. You know who wrote, I quoted in my text, the same idea? Yes, that guy, Reinhard Heydrich. He said, we fully support Jews who want a state there. They will defend Western values, blah, blah, we just don't want them here. Breivik, you remember the Norwegian madman, said the same thing. And the tragic thing, I cannot even imagine the consequences, is that the Israeli government is playing this game. Look at Trump. He was the model of this. He fully supported uh, 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 Israeli expansionism. At the same time, he has openly flirted in the United States with anti-Semitic... With Nazis. With with Nazis. With Nazis, yes. This is, I think, one of the saddest aspects of the terrible situation we are in. OK. I said my thing...
1: Now well, let me say my thing, too, here, because I need to make it clear. Yeah. Uh, these are difficult times. I know. Um, once upon a time, when the establishment wanted to, to assassinate our character, the character of left-wingers, of um, difficult people like us, they called us communists. Okay, or subversives, or Marxists. I, I, don't mind being called these things. I'm all those things. I confess. Then they discovered another way of getting at us, to call us things that hurt. To call us, to call me a misogynist. I consider myself to be a staunch feminist. I have come from a long line of feminist women. My grandmother was a suffragette in the 1920s in Cairo in Egypt. For God's sakes, you know. My mother was a active feminist. I consider myself to be a feminist. To be called a misogynist, even if it, I know it is completely made up, it hurts. To be called an anti-Semite, it hurts. Because I would wear the Star of David here. Whenever a Jew faces persecution for being a Jew. But at the same time, now we're in a situation where look at my friend Ken Loach, Jeremy Corbyn to bring us down, our political opponents, immediately slap this accusation on us simply because we are opposing apartheid. Because the problem I have with Israel is that it is an apartheid state. You know, I spent my youth in London being beaten up with others in Hyde Park demonstrating against apartheid. When Mandela was in prison, and Margaret Thatcher was calling him a terrorist, right I never imagined that apartheid would die in South Africa and be reconvened in Palestine. Calling out apartheid. By the way, I have to give my thanks and great appreciation to our comrades in Israel. The Betzelen organization, the human rights Jewish organization, that were the first who dared call Israel an apartheid state. Uh, so, having made this point, uh, I'm not surprised by what you say. The worst enemies of the people of Greece were Greeks. Every time we have been defeated, We've been defeated not by ironclad foreign armies, but by our own folks, from time immemorial, even when the Persians invaded. Half of the Greek city-states went with the Persians. Half of them.
0: It's not the heroic Sparta bringing no, Thebes, the Greeks together.
1: Thebes was an ally. Thebes, next to Athens, yeah, yeah, a stone's yeah. throw from Athens. were an ally of the, of the Persians.
0: No wonder they produced the during, during, uh, during,
1: during, During the occupation, during the occupation, It was the collaborators that did the most damage, not the the Germans. People ask me about 2015, why did you lose against the Troika? Was it because Schäuble was harsh? No, of course not. I knew exactly how harsh the IMF and Schäuble would be. It was our own people. It was division within our ranks and the fact that the, the Greek oligarchy was absolutely determined that the Greek people get defeated and that we become a dead colony in which they... So, you know... This is not an exceptionalist argument about the Zionist anti Semites. It's, it's everywhere. Except that the plight of the Palestinian people is so much greater than the plight of any other people. Because they have been completely forgotten. The collapse of the Soviet Union was a, a mighty blow. Because they were on the losing side of the Cold War, uh, you had the migration of uh, Russian Jews strengthening the demographics and so on. Uh, and you have the abomination of Saddam Hussein trying to present himself as the defender of the Palestinians. Uh, you, you, having a butcher defend your, your rights is the worst thing that can happen to you, right? Um, and, and you have a situation where, until the latest uprising, most of my Palestinian friends and Jewish friends who support the Palestinian cause felt that the cause was dying day by day. But this very poignant uprising has created new hope. New hope in purely Hegelian style of the liberation of the Jews of Israel. Because the worst victims after the Palestinians are progressive Jews in Israel who live under an Netanyahu kind of regime. You know, they, they are prisoners of an Israel that is completely
0: against the interests of progressive Jews. Agree. Just uh, before, you should say... No, no, I will not say anything. Just give... you. Uh, You know what we totally neglected? You are not politically a nobody. You have now DM and progressive... I am
1: not politically a nobody. Almost nobody. The negation of the negation.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, uh, my God, uh, it fascinated me so much how that progressive international that you mentioned, it's not just like a group of Trotskyists meeting in a basement. It's something serious going on. Please tell them in one minute.
1: It started. Uh, you, you know that I've been involved in DM25, which is a pan-European movement. We ran in elections in Greece and elected nine members of parliament. But in the middle of doing all this, um, I was invited to by The Guardian to write a comment on an article by Bernie Sanders in 2018. Bernie Sanders, no, actually the other way around. I was invited to write an article about what I think the problem of the world is. You know. Mm. The Guardian does that. So, I said the problem is the twin authoritarianisms. The authoritarianism of the liberal establishment and the authoritarianism of the fascist. And what we need is a progressive international because the, you know, the bankers and the fascists are internationalizing. Only the progressives are not internationalizing. So, we need a progressive international. And they gave this to Bernie Sanders and they asked him to comment. He provided a very nice comment, saying that was right and so on. And then they asked they liked that, so the idea, they, they had the idea that, that they would ask him to write an article with me commenting. So the two were published like that, the two articles and the two comments. Um and then we go together, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was actually wonderful in twenty fifteen. He lent me enormous support during these negotiations with the drug. He even threatened Christine Lagarde and the IMF that as a senator he would start the process of starving the IMF of funding if they continued doing what they were doing in Greece, which is remarkable. Not that he had the power to do it, but it was nice that he... It was a good thought. Uh, Well, he's one senator (laughs) out of a cent, But it was, you know, it was extremely helpful. So we got in, in, in touch and we said, "Okay, well, enough talking. If we both agree that we should have a progressive international, let's have it. So, a few months later, we met in Vermont. Um, It was a a, a wonderful gathering. You know, all the good comrades, all the the usual suspects. You know, Cornel West, Susan Sarandon, Bernie Sanders, uh, um, uh, Jacob's daughter, the Prime Minister of Iceland, and so on. So, we, we made an open call. Then, something horrible happened, and the whole thing was suspended. It's called the American election. (laughs) Because the American election means that Bernie could not participate in this. I don't know whether you know that. If you're a candidate in the United States, you cannot participate in any international organization. Did you know that? So much for, you know, worldliness of the American political system. So we put this um, on ice for a while, and then we recovered it, and and, and a, a year and a half ago, we launched properly the Progressive International, And we've done a lot of work, which most people don't know about. But the whole point is to organize a common agenda of progressives and also a common set of actions, not just talk. Because the World Social Forum was great in the sense that we got together, once a year we chatted, and then we forgot about it. We were so impressed with ourselves that we forgot about it. Um, It's a question of doing stuff as well. So the first action we carried out in December on that horrible day called Black Friday, which is you know, the great sale of the American uh, consumerist machine which has been expanded, expanded and brought to Europe as well. So on that day, we decided to target Amazon. And we had a, a campaign called Make Amazon Pay. And by that time we had uh, gathered... Uh, trade unions and other organizations, climate change, uh, um, activists and so on, Uh, all sorts of different movements. And they, they joined the Progressive International to the extent that we ended up with 200 million affiliated members. So to test the water and to test our capacity to act globally as a Progressive International, on that day, we had a rolling strike in Amazon warehouses. It started in Bangladesh it moved to India, jumped to Germany, from Germany to New Jersey, and from New Jersey to Seattle, with artistic events at the same time, projections on buildings, on, Je- on uh, Jeff Bezos' house, we projected, make Amazon pay. There's <laughs> a great picture of that. The headquarters in Seattle, make Amazon pay. Um, so. You know, and now we're continuing. We have, we have a meeting happening in March in uh, Chile uh, where everybody gets together. We have, you know, uh, people like Rafael Correa, um, a member of that. I think you are a member of that. You don't know it, but you are. Um, uh, you know, Lula from Brazil. Uh, but also, the most important thing is we have young activists from Africa and from Bangladesh and from India. And you should hear them speak when they they take the floor, you know, 18, 19-year-old kids from Kenya and from Ghana. It's, uh, you know, it, it makes getting up in the morning and doing stuff worthwhile.
0: I cannot agree more. Thank you very much. Now, since I'm a little bit myopic, would you, uh, uh, how we should organize no, no, be-
1: before you give the mic, before you give the mic, before you, don't hand it over yet. It will have to be a woman that speaks first. <laughs> Enough of men. And then a man. And... Hello, Luca. Uh, it's an honor to hear you live, not just on YouTube. Uh, I
3: have a question concerning Europe's enlargement processes and uh, how and where does this fit Europe's economic agenda in context of the
1: capitalism. And as you said, countries like China now are more keen on investing in countries like Serbia and Macedonia. So what is your standpoint and opinion? It's a difficult question because we know why the European Union expanded so quickly. It was a kind of, I know this is a terrible term, it was a kind of lebensraum, vital space for German and German-related industry. That's why Hungary, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland came in so quickly. They came in because of the expansion of the German industrial machine. Now, at the same time, what do you say to people in Poland, in Hungary, in North Macedonia, in Serbia and so on, who say, you know, we feel that we are going to be more protected in terms of our liberties? My my response to that is, if that's how you feel, by all means come in and we will support you. But make no mistake, the dearth of investment across Europe is not going to suddenly be waved away just because Serbia comes in. There will be no investment in Serbia, in the same way that there is no investment in Croatia. How much investment is there in in Slovenia? Yes, okay, this building. They paid some some of it. Good. Great. I'm now sounding like uh, Monty Python. And what have the Romans done for us? (laughs) (laughs) But nevertheless. Nevertheless, the investment is a huge problem in Germany. They're not investing in Germany. In, in, in Germany, starved of investment, which is crazy because that country, you know, Germany, has never had so much money as they, they do now. Uh, so, as a, as, a, as a Greek politician, I have to answer that if it comes to the Greek parliament that one of the former Yugoslav states is coming in, I'll vote Yes. But I want you folks to think very seriously about the balance of power between your oligarchies and your working classes when you enter. You have a very authoritarian, right wing, problematic, misanthropic government in Serbia, for instance. Uh, you're suffering under them. It is natural to think you'll get in the European Union and you'll be protected from your own government. Maybe it will happen, maybe it won 't happen. Maybe the regimes are going to get, get, get become even more solidified. Look at you know the liberal democracies of Poland and, Ho- and Hungary. Angela Merkel has bent over backwards to, ac- to accommodate those fascistic governments um, and they will continue to do this so I defer to the peoples of those countries. If you want to come in, you'll have my support, but don't think that you'll solve your problems by coming into the European Union. Courtesy of coming into the European Union on its own. a lot of work needs to be done. There are instruments in the European Union that you can use for liberty and for progress, but it's not automatic.
3: I have a microphone. Yes? Uh, Hello, Vlatka Kolarovic from Zagreb. Uh, I would like uh, to ask you a question about us, people, users of these digital platforms you were talking about. Uh, Are we creating something in this world or are we just slaves or are we important, like users of all this uh, digital world around us?
1: I use uh, digital technologies all the time and I'm fanatical about them. I love them. Okay? But as a boring old Marxist, I will have to say to you, never fetishize the instrument, and never turn against the instrument. Turn against the social relations of ownership and production of the instruments. So, let's change the way in which these technologies are being produced and used, but for for goodness sake, you know, use them. And use them against those who are providing them to you.
3: Um, hi, I have a question about Wolfgang Schäuble and <laughs> a question uh, about the library card ownership of stocks. So Wolfgang Schäuble, wouldn't you say, would you say, what would you have done if you were in his shoes? Would you simply do as he did, which seems to me basically be, to, be, to be defending what he thought were German geopolitical interests? You see, and let, let me answer can... this question,
1: and, and, and you ask this, the, the man immediately afterwards, because it will be very, very brief. I would never be in his shoes. <laughs> they would never put me in his shoes, because this is not a personal thing. Um, there are certain economic and political interests that wanted somebody like Schäuble. I remember a discussion between Noam Chomsky and a a BBC journalist. And Chomsky was going on, quite correctly, about the inherent bias of the media. And the media tell one story and they will never tell another story. And this journalist said to him, a very nice, good, Andrew Marr, a good BBC journalist, and he said to him, Professor Chomsky, are you telling me that you think that I am saying things I don't believe in? that what I'm saying to you has been imposed upon me by a system, and Chomsky Chomsky turned around and said, no, 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 I am convinced that you believe in what you're saying. But if you didn't believe in what you were saying, you would not be having that position. So, similarly with Scheuble. So, what's the second question?
3: The second question um, was about the library card uh, ownership of uh, of stocks, and I was simply um, wondering, if you had any thoughts on uh, Yugoslavia's uh, tradition of self-management, and you thought if that was kind of uh, useful in your thoughts.
1: Absolutely. The Yugoslav uh, self-management model was uh, an incredible experience for the world. Uh, I know people, Americans, who came here in the 1960s to study the Yugoslav self-management model, Because it was a success story. Right-wing economists, not left-wing economists. uh, It it was ahead of its time. Because digital technologies are important for the management and governance of self-managed firms. The capacity to uh, communicate through fora, through intranets, through apps to vote, is much enhanced when you have digital technology. You didn't have that in Yugoslavia. You had to do everything by, with paper and actual physical meetings of workers, which made them, you, you know, Oscar Wilde. They last so long. Socialism will never take place. Um, there were aspects of the Yugoslav model that I didn't like, like, for instance, uh, too much hierarchy. You had you elected the hierarchy but there was far more hierarchy than was necessary. It was an attempt to emulate capitalist enterprises with voting. Uh, But the reason why the Yugoslav economic model, self-management model collapsed, was not because of its inherent dysfunctionalities. It was because the government of Yugoslavia between 1971 and 1975 made a huge error of borrowing large, gigantic amounts of money from American and Western banks, at an interest rate of 2,5%, 3%. And the the moment the oil crisis pushed interest rates to 20%, Yugoslavia was over from an economic point of view.
2: I have a question, please.
1: Where are you? I can't see you. I'm on your right.
0: Hi. So uh, quite a few years have passed since the Paris climate agreement. And as we can see, um, situation is not getting any better is actually getting quite worse. So how do extreme climate events fit into your progressive agenda if on one hand we have people who are judged by not using linen bags to shop, and there we have on the other side Paul Allen who crushes a complete and full coral reef with his super yacht. What can we do, and what is your agenda that can we use all of those? Problems? Well, firstly, the
1: great concentration of wealth is terrible for the environment. You just gave an example. You know, when that 1% of the 1% has so much power that they can actually usurp Agendas, even green agendas, and they can do plenty of greenwashing. I mean, look at the European Union now. They are talk- even the, even the, those ambitious targets include um, using wood pellets from turning ancient forests into um, plantations, and they call this green. Um, so when 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 exorbitant power is running the green transition. The green transition is never going to be green. Uh, the number one priority should be investing in uh, renewable energy and creating a, a union, a proper union. It's remarkable in the European Union that we have, we don't have an energy union. Do you realize that? Every country plants its own renewables, which is crazy. You know, just think of how Europe looks from a satellite. It's not that huge a place. To have a German plan, an Italian plan, a Slovenian plan, it's it's madness. And An extraterrestrial will tell you. Go and find one. She will tell you. Um, So we need... Our movement's estimation was that we needed three years ago, 500 billion euros a year for... uh, the green transition, especially when it comes to energy. People say, oh, this is a lot of money. Where are we going to find it from? Well, you're printing it anyway and giving it to Deutsche Bank to give it to Volkswagen to buy its shares. So there's a very simple way, uh, even within capitalism, even within the European Union as we have, we have the European Investment Bank. It's in Luxembourg, the armpit of the universe. Right? It's there. It's sitting there in Luxembourg. Uh, Well, can borrow money by issuing bonds. Well, issue 500 billion worth of bonds on behalf of the whole of Europe. Be- this bank belongs to all of us, Europeans. okay? And have the European Central Bank support it. Yeah, even buy those bonds of it, if needs be. So suddenly you have half a trillion every year to spend on an energy union. But we're not doing any of this. And the reason why we're not doing it is because our politicians are in the pockets of the large corporations that want to sell their own um, wind, uh, windmills, right? which are not part of any plan. They just go and put a 200-meter windmill on top of a mountain, which is terrible for the mountain. No, no, the local community hates it. It turns the local community against renewables. And it's not part of an integrated plan. And when it rots, this thing, it, it's not even recyclable. So it's a question of using... Green Keynesianism, if you want. You know, the, these instruments, like the one that I gave an example of, the European Investment Bank and the European Central Bank, these public financial instruments, they're tools, we have them, use them to mobilize huge quantities of money and press them into the service of the green transition, and then moving towards a decentralized self-managed grid. You see the beauty of renewables, unlike oil or natural gas or nuclear all these are, need huge factories, economies quanti- of scale. So somebody's going to own them, either the state or some individual. Or corporation. But with renewables, you can have you know, um, solar panels everywhere. You can have small windmills everywhere. You can have uh, um, hydrogen producing uh, renewable energy. So hydrogen will replace diesel in trucks and so on. And all these can the ownership can be dispersed in different neighborhoods, owning different cells of that network. Uh, but that means going against the grain of the interest of corporate capitalism that wants to concentrate all power in their hands.
0: One last okay. yeah. Yeah. And Luca. They, uh,
1: Luca. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, 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 is this the end?
3: Is this the end? Last nice question. <laughs> because I want to ironically... Okay, if uh, I was given a mic, I will pose a question. Um, I believe that it was in 2011 or 12 when Slava, you said that Alexis Tsipras was um, the most dangerous man in Europe, right? Did I? Yeah. 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 But it was rewriting of history. Self rewriting of history. But at that point, I believe it was correct, um, and I believe you will agree to because um, the, the southern Europe was more or less going on, underwater. Uh, Greece was in financial trouble. Italy was in financial trouble, Spain, Portugal, and so on.
1: We still
3: so, are. Still are. Still are. And um, uh, the gamble of uh, Syriza and Tsipras back then was uh, if we ascend to power and if we threat the European authorities with defaulting, not repaying our debts, uh, the panic on financial markets will spread to Italy and Spain and Portugal and so on, and they will have to change something in their policy towards uh, those countries. That was assessment in 2012, and I believe it was correct, and that's why I agree with uh, Slavo's uh, description of Tsipras at that time. However, um, Syriza have not come to power in 2012, but in 2015. And then, until then, uh, two major um, things changed. The first is that Draghi, that you mentioned, we mentioned him before, already um, made his famous proclamation, uh, whatever it takes, meaning I'll do whatever it takes to save the euro. And second, as if um, anticipating Syriza coming to power, in January 2015, he started with quantitative easing. No, first March. First March, Okay. Okay, then it was... See, it's important, <laughs> yeah, because it's important. we were already in
1: government. Yes. And we could have stopped
3: that. And um, see? see what I'm yes. saying? Um, I know. That, that's, why, that's why I'm asking. When yeah. you came to power, uh, Mario Draghi started with quantitative easing. That yeah. means um, printing money, buying government bonds. So the south of Europe was still underwater, but Mario Draghi came and gave them, um, so to call, straws to breathe. Uh, they could survive underwater, Italy, Spain, and so on. That's why they're still underwater. But uh, a straw was given to everyone but to Greece. So my question is, uh, in that circumstances, um, I believe uh, your game was kind of lost from the beginning. No, you weren't here at the beginning, were you? I was, I was here at the beginning. So you that, didn't that's hear what I'm, I said about yes, the bonds? That, that's why I'm asking. So my question is, wouldn't a, a default of Greece in those circumstances be just a default of Greece? No, 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 no.
1: You probably weren't here at the beginning because I explained that. Uh, we had a plan B and we had a nuclear weapon. We had a nuclear weapon. Now, nuclear weapon is not always a good thing to have. But nevertheless, on that occasion, it answers your question, because okay, let, let's let's retrace what you said, because up until a point you were absolutely right. Up until the point where, in March of 2015, Draghi starts spreading money, and giving the straw, as you put it, a nice metaphor, uh, to various countries, including France, okay, and allowing them to, you know, to continue breathing even if we defaulted. That's where you are. Because if we defaulted at that point, okay, we're talking about the first few months, if, we had, if, if Tsipras had backed me in what we had agreed would be our strategy. You see, Tsipras and I had agreed that that would be our strategy. Because of his great clash with Jens Weidmann of the Bundesbank, the only way he was allowed on the 1st of March to start giving the straw to these countries was if no debt that he already owned was written down. I owed him 29 billion. I, could, I had in my drawer, the right drawer, of my desk, I had a ministerial decree by which I postponed the payment of those bonds, of 29 billion, to 2042. Why? Because of the movie. Remember 2042? In Science it, fiction movie. Isn't it 2049? A 2049, yeah. yeah. Something like that. Okay. Uh, that would have meant that Draghi would not be able to, to, to buy Italian debt. Okay? The reason why we lost it was because Tsipras signaled to Draghi that he wouldn't allow me to do it. It's like, you know, you have David and Goliath. David has a chance. A chance of winning the struggle against Goliath. He's got a little catapult. But if As David is going into the battlefield, you take the catapult away from him. Then you lose. Uh,
0: Okay, I would just like to say something. I owe you an insult as to all my friends to conclude. First, I'm sad that we cannot go on and on because you know, at the end, at least there was a little bit of disagreement. I think that the reason Yugoslavia fell apart was more complex. Of course. I and said
1: economically.
0: I, because, said economically. you know, we, the, the big enigma is why Yugoslavia, which was held up as the most democratic, open, blah, 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 paid the most horrible price with the civil war. But let's drop that. Now, really, to conclude, I will strike back at you with Monty Python, the same joke, You know, uh, from uh, uh, no, it's not. It's from the from the life of Brian movie, I think. No, yeah, where they have this Palestinian front and say, "What did the Romans do for us?" You know, nothing. Bridges, yes, yeah. And now I will say to say "What did Yanis do for us here?" Nothing. Okay. <laughs> he explained very well the Syriza situation. He uh, uh, gave us a wonderful overview of today's capitalism. He, uh, and so on, and so on. But overall, it was nothing. So, thank you. Yeah. <laughs>